Hi, I'm the Contract Tutor, and welcome back to Basic Contract Law for Students. The last several episodes, we have been going over what creates a contract. We now know that that is the offer, acceptance, and consideration. But now that a contract has been made, is it enforceable? The statute of frauds deals with enforceability. It was created for a specific set of contracts that the court especially worries about with fraud. So it's about enforceability. Contracts whose subject matter are within this scope are not enforceable unless they are in writing and signed. The easiest way to remember these six types of contracts is by an acronym called MYLEGS. M-Y-L-E-G-S. MYLEGS. First is marriage. Marriage includes any promise that induces someone to marry by offering something of value. Second, we have year. These are contracts that cannot possibly be performed within a year. There is an exception. It's contracts for life. And although that seems counterintuitive, a contract for life could possibly be performed within a year because the person could die tomorrow. Third is land, like transfers of interest in land. There are some exceptions. You have to have two out of three of the following. Possession, like moving in, payment, or improvement. So PPI, possession, payment, improvement. You have to have two of three of those to count as an exception. So if someone is moving in and money has left their bank account for a payment, then there's probably a deal somewhere so the court isn't too worried about fraud. Then we have E, executor. So this is like an administrator of an estate. The administrator of a decedent's estate feels bad that the estate cannot pay for the good causes the decedent had promised. So the administrator promises to pay instead. So for example, when the decedent was alive, they promised to donate a certain amount of money to a charity. But now that they've passed away, they can't do that. And their estate doesn't have enough money to actually pay the promised money to the charity. So the executor or the administrator would feel bad and they would promise to pay the charity however much money that the decedent had promised. Next is goods, G. This is going to be most important with $500 or more. If your goods are $500 or more, then it needs to be signed and in writing. But if your goods are $499.99 or less, then it's fine. So modifications, remember we spoke about last time, modifications must also be in writing, but they do not require consideration like common law does, because the UCC only requires good faith. Note that handwritten modifications have more weight. Now goods are going to be heavily tested because there are several exceptions to it, and they're all easily testable. So these exceptions mean that if it meets one of these things, then the contract does not have to be signed or in writing. So it could meet one or more of these to qualify as an exception. So first is specialty-made goods, so custom-made goods. These are kinds of goods that cannot be used for resale. And the creator, whoever's making the good, has substantially begun performance. For example, Hank orders neon green and magenta shirts that say, 
Ebediah family reunion on them. If I've already made most of the shirt, then no one else is going to want them, and Hank loses this defense. The defense of, oh, it wasn't signed or in writing, so there's no contract. So he loses that defense because this is an exception. Second is part performance, and this one is special because it can apply to any of the My Legs items. You can only recover the amount that was performed or delivered, though, so be careful with that. Third is admissions, admitting that there was a contract in court. So it's not the same as the person who's denying the contract coming up to the person they had supposedly contracted with and saying, oh, I know we have a contract, but whatever, you know. It has to be actually like in court to count for this exception. Fourth is a merchant confirmatory memo. This one is going to be heavily tested as well. A merchant confirmatory memo needs to be in writing and signed by the sender. Both parties need to be merchants, but they can be merchants in the broad sense. That's okay. So the recipient of the merchant confirmatory memo needs to have a reason to know of the contents and doesn't send a written objection within 10 days. So if you and I saw each other in the morning and we talked about some sort of deal we were going to have, and then later you get an email from me, then you have a reason to know that my email is going to be something about what we talked about earlier that day. So you have 10 days to send me back a written objection before this exception kicks in. A merchant confirmatory memo also needs to state the quantity. We care about quantity because the court can come up with a price just by looking at fair market value. So if the contract doesn't state a price, that's okay. But if a quantity was never stated, then it wouldn't be fair for the court to force one party to buy a certain amount of them. Lastly, we have surety, which is the guarantor of another's debt. Now, this is different from a cosigner. With a cosigner, a creditor will come after the primary and the cosigner at the same time if the debt's not paid. But with a surety, a creditor will first go after the primary obligor, then the surety. There's one exception to this rule. It's the main purpose doctrine. The surety person is doing it for their own financial benefit. So it's their main purpose in guaranteeing someone else's debt because they have a financial stake in the game. For example, a bank says there'll be a surety to Firestone for Ford so that Firestone will give Ford tires. The bank has invested in Ford and needs Ford's cars to sell, which can't be done without tires because nobody would want to buy a car without tires. So the bank has a financial stake in Ford selling cars. Thus, this surety situation will not need to be signed or in writing. All right, let's quickly recap. So statute of frauds is about enforceability. So first you have to determine whether a contract was made, and then you can determine if it was enforceable. So you definitely need to ask yourself that in an exam. Is this a formation question or an enforceability question? Next, the statute of frauds consists of six things, which is my legs, marriage, year, land, executor, goods, and surety. And all of those have their own exceptions to them. 
I'm the Contract Tutor, and thank you for listening to Basic Contract Law for Students.